Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. By keeping it simple, that makes my daily practice attainable and sustainable because I know well, I can be done in 30 minutes. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Patty Vincent. In the conversation, you'll learn a ton about gouache, including why it might be a good fit for your artistic goals. Plus, we really get into the importance of simplification, what it is and how to approach it across your whole process. You might be surprised at where simplification begins for Vincent. In this episode's extended cut bonus, you'll discover how Vincent approaches her foreground, middle ground, and background, and you'll get some great ideas for how to inch your way into plain air painting. You can take a listen by joining the podcast art club over on Patreon at any tier. For show notes and to sign up for the newsletter list, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 75. All right, here we go. Hi, Patty. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? Hi, Kelly. Nice to talk to you today. I got started in art back in elementary school, got some private lessons with the art teacher, really enjoyed it. But then she moved up to the high school. And so that basically stopped till I was in my 30s. So I had already gotten a degree in nursing and I was a stay-at-home mom. Our son was in middle school. And a friend of mine who's an artist kind of gave me a hard time about, you know, what do you do all day long? So I was lucky enough to be living in Arlington, Virginia, and there's a whole lot of places there to take art classes. So I started taking adult education classes and jumped right into oil painting because that's what I wanted in my home. Well, then how did that first art class go? It was terrifying. I had zero confidence. I did not know how to mix colors. I literally had an elementary education on drawing. So I froze, you know, I asked my teacher what I was supposed to do repeatedly, like every step of the way. And I did have a very, very good teacher for that type of student. Well, as a kid, when you learn art, you know, you just love what you're doing and you're not worried what other people think. But as an adult, like you're a fully capable person starting something new. So how did you not let that overwhelm stop you? I think it was the desire to get better. And so I just kept taking classes and finally figured out I needed to take a drawing class. And then that opened a whole new series of challenges and opportunities and insight. As a parent, how did you structure the learning time for you? Was it mostly you learned in classes or how did you structure time outside of the class? Well, I was lucky that I only had the one child. He was already in middle school, you know, and then they have after school activities and friends they want to hang out with and stuff like that. So it was in class learning a lot, but I was a good student. I did do my homework. I did paint and draw outside of class. And mostly I just had the freedom to do that almost whenever I wanted to, basically Monday through Friday. Did you structure that time as finished paintings or did you work on exercises? 
I would probably say finish painting at that stage of your career. You think that's what you should be doing, right? Well, I need one more to hang on the wall or I need one for this show that's coming up. So I would say that was the goal. It should not have been. Hindsight being 2020, I know I should have been doing exercises, just filling up sketchbook after sketchbook and not worrying about being judged. But I had already joined the Arlington Artist Alliance and was going to their monthly meetings and they have shows every month. And so you felt not necessarily peer pressure, but you know what I mean, to join those things, even if you like looking back on it at that artwork, because you know, you have images of that artwork and you're just like, ooh, what was I thinking? Well, then was there a point where you decided I'm going to get really good at this? Yes. So my husband was in the Air Force all of this time. And we got stationed in Dayton, Ohio, and we were living on base in Dayton, Ohio. There was an art school at Wright State University, and it was directly outside the gates of the Air Force Base. So if parking was not an issue, I could have literally gone from my house to my seat in the classroom in less than 15 minutes. So it was ideal. I got up the nerve to apply and got accepted. And so that was the point when I think I really decided that I was going to put forth the effort. Is that where you found gouache or where did, how did you find gouache specifically? I found gouache four and a half, five years ago. I had been an oil painter the entire time and I was participating in one of the 30 day challenges on social media where you paint every day and then you post it to social media and we were going to go to japan to visit our son who was in the air force it was in september and i'm like well i can't take oil paints to japan because how will i know how to find gamsol in japan or what if tsa takes my oil paint you know what will i do so i had seen some people online painting in gouache and it was a water media um, which took the gamsol out of the question it comes in little tubes, which I thought TSA probably wouldn't care about. And it turns out they do not care about. You can put it right there with your toothpaste and your carry-on bag. Probably had like eight tubes of gouache in that little plastic bag and it doesn't phase any of them. I was quite frankly scared to try watercolor because I had always heard it was such an unforgiving medium. And gouache is opaque, very similar to oil. So I just gave it a try and... It was a Strata challenge, Strata easel challenge. I think that's a wonderful way to learn gouache or a new medium because you have that competitive spirit in you that wants to post something every day. So that means that for 30 days, you're going to try it every day, right? So um, that's how I came to paint with gouache. And then the ease of setting up and cleaning up gouache as opposed to oil made it stick. So I still paint in oil, but the ease of travel, and then because it was so easy to clean up and set up, it hung around as a favorite. And I should give a plug for the Strata Isa Challenge. As of this recording, recording, they do it twice a year. It's January and September, and it, I've never participated, but from a, like a, a watching standpoint, it's truly one of my favorite challenges. I agree. Totally. And it's free. How is gouache different from oil? And how is it the same, I guess? So compare the two for me. So it's the same in that it's okay. You can cover up a stroke with a stroke. You don't have to reserve the white of the page. Differences would be gouache is water-soluble. Of course, oil. You can use water-soluble oil. I just have never. And you, you don't have to rely on Gamsol or mineral spirits, maybe as much as I do for oil painting. There are other ways to clean your brushes. It's just not as easy or traditional. So 
the difference of the being able to clean up with water, with gouache, it was a game changer for me. And I've learned that, you know, you can close your palette. You, if you're painting a painting and in gouache, you can close your palette. You can come back in a month and clean it up. You know, there's no like time limit. Ideally, you clean it up as you go so you're ready the next time you want to paint. And the same holds true with your brush. You know, in gouache, you can wash your brush down a month later and all it takes is water. In oil, you, if you waited a month, you'd probably need to throw that brush out. Yes, there are things you can, you know, attempt to do to clean it, but I really like to keep things as simple as possible. So cleaning up along the way makes sense just so you're ready to go the next time. But, you know, if you're traveling and you are painting in gouache, you get through TSA, you just have to go find a source of water, which, you know, they have bathrooms in every airport. You get your little cup of water and then you're good to go. You can paint till they call your name to get on the, the plane. When they do, you can just close your palette, you can close your sketchbook, and it's not going to be damaged. You can go get on the plane because it's odorless. You can paint on the plane. No one around you is going to care. You know, your little cup of water is no more dangerous than the person drinking a you know a Diet Coke beside you or the kid drinking milk or something like that. And you would never do that with oil, right? I mean... I can't, I don't, I'm sure the, you know, flight attendant would come right over and ask you to stop. Gouache is more convenient. It's easier to clean up. It's easier to set up. To me, it, it takes less supplies too, because anything can hold your water. It can be a Dixie cup. It can be a little recyclable Tupperware container you might have where with oil painting, you know, you have to be much more mindful about a cup of mineral spirits. The other more difference, when traveling with oil versus gouache, if a tube of gouache broke, I would not be near as concerned about the cleanup effort as I would a tube of oil paint because gouache is simply gum arabic and the high concentration of the pigment. And then oil, of course, is linseed oil and the pigment. So it'd be an oil versus water, you know, uh, cleanup. And gum arabic is in a lot of our foods as a binder, like it's in Diet Coke. So not that I'm saying you should eat your gouache because of that high pigment concentration. It is not safe to consume, but they're using the same gum arabic that they use in food. How many colors do you use? Again, it's one of those keep everything as simple as possible. So I use two yellows, primary yellow and yellow ochre cobalt blue, Venetian red, and a white, either titanium or zinc. So that also allows you to travel a little easily because you only have you know, those two yellows, blue, and a red. So four tubes plus your white, so five tubes that can easily go in any bag and any, you know, go through TSA easily. What's the difference between titanium and zinc white? Titanium is more opaque, but it is a very, very slight difference. So if you mix it with another color, say your red, it's going to make it whiter or chalkier, but it will also make it more opaque. It will also turn it to that pink quicker from a red. And zinc, being slightly more transparent, will help you maintain the transparency of a transparent paint. And it won't be so bossy on your painting. But like I said, it is a very slight difference. You could get away with either one of them. Being if you could only take one tube of white, you'd be okay. If you want, like I frequently paint our cat Max, he's a tuxedo, so he's black and white. 
And if I want a really bright white, you know, that's in the sunshine, I'm guaranteed it with titanium. I can probably get it with zinc. So there's not a giant difference. Why those colors? Like I've noticed you have two yellows, but only one blue, one red. What does that particular combination of color allow you to do? Well, the blue and the red are really rather neutral blues and reds. And cobalt is pretty close to sky color. So I do a lot of landscape painting. uh, So it lets me get there the quickest. The yellows, primary yellow and yellow ochre are just extremely different yellows. Primary yellow is very bright. If you think of an object that's yellow, maybe a school bus, although I think of that as leaning towards orange. But if you say you wanted to paint a flower that was really, really yellow and you needed, you would need that to get there. You know, yellow is one of those primary colors. You cannot create it. So if you have a very bright yellow flower, you kind of need primary yellow to get there. Yellow ochre, on the other hand, is more of a red, muted, earthy tone, yellow, but it's found very naturally in landscape, whether it's a tree you're painting or grass or, you know, really almost any time of the year, the grass color can start with yellow. I use primarily yellow ochre, and occasionally I'll add in a little bit of the primary yellow to my mixture. I could probably take primary yellow out, but sometimes a green, I can get there easier if I add a little primary yellow in. So it sounds like you've you've figured out like how to make the shortest cut to where you're going without having a thousand pigments on your palette. Right. Again, I keep it simple. Learn about your paint. Learn how to mix those greens and those purples and those blacks. And it's just the simplest thing. How do you lay out your color and do you lay it out fresh every time or like with oil if you keep it in the freezer you know like it'll stay wet and when i think of watercolor it can dry out but you can reactivate it but how do you deal with like the pigment part of your pigments i do not have to squeeze it out every time that said i am mostly a daily painter so i'm using it every day what i use is an airtight palette when i'm done painting i clean up the mixing area the wells will have some paint in them. You know, if I used a lot of yellow ochre, there might only be a little bit in there. I just don't worry about that amount. You know, the white, there may be a lot in there. If it has dried out at all during the session, I might spritz it with a little water bottle. And then I'll put a damp paper towel in the mixing area and close the palette and I'll put it in the refrigerator. Um, so the airtight palette, I think, is essential. The damp paper towel is essential. I do have more than one of them, the airtight palettes. And I have a refrigerator in my studio. I have a refrigerator at home. So we were traveling one time and the palette that was in the studio refrigerator, it was almost a month before I opened it back up and those paints were still ready to use. So it can be done. I've never had mold, but I've had some students have mold in their palettes when they do that same method. If you're painting every day, mold is not going to be an issue because you're going to open up that palette. You know, you're going to change out that damp paper towel on occasion. So is your goal to keep your pigments just a little bit, not tacky, but you don't want them to be like hard cakes? No. I think traditional gouache, once it gets to be hard cakes, you could go through a lot of steps of like grinding it up and adding some gum arabic and stuff like that. But it's easier to just kind of maintain a slightly fluid gouache on your palette and you know if it gets to that cake you know if you accidentally leave it open and you know there an emergency arises or something and you leave your palette open and you don't get back for a couple hours or a day or something i think i would just scrape it off and 
um, put it in the trash can. What brushes do you use? But almost more importantly than, than that, what do those brushes allow you to do? So this is another one of my keep it simple areas. I use one brush. I would say for 99.9% of my paintings, and it is a bright size 16 Raphael Corel, and the number is 8796. And because it is a bright, which to me is basically square shaped, the head of the brush, you know, I have a big stroke, but then I also have the tips of the square, the corners of the square, which enabled me to make a line or a dot, you know, or you know, back to that cat, you know, the, the paw of the cat or a branch of a tree. And because it's gouache and it's opaque, you can always renegotiate your strokes. So if you are using a brush this size to make a tree trunk and, or a tree in general, and then as you move along the painting process and you say, well, I made that way too big, you can just mix up whatever colors around it and cut back into it, reshape it, um, because, you know, again, you're using opaque paint. I can do everything I need to do with this size brush, and that way I only have to add one brush to my supplies for plein air, for travel, in the studio. How soft or not soft? Like some watercolor brushes, for example, are like pretty floppy. Do you want a little bit of, like it's got a little bit of pushback? Yeah, it is a little bit of firmness. Uh, but the bristles are soft, synthetic. Yeah, I'd say the firmness is probably more important for me than the softness. A size 16 is pretty big and your small paintings that are like two by two. So a lot of people would look at a two by two space and think, oh goodness, like I'm going to go down a size, but like you've stuck with the size 16. So why is that? And what does that give you? A size 16 brush allows me to paint even quicker, even if it's a two by two. With a two by two, you know, you can put a wash across an entire surface in three strokes. And I think it keeps you from being picky. It might not keep you from overworking it, but it's going to keep you from treating every area like it's precious, which to me is freeing psychologically. Personally, I think it makes it easier to paint with a large brush and maybe puts you in the right mindset to not to treat it as precious. So many of us look for a new thing when we're trying to solve a problem, like we're facing a problem in a painting and we think like, oh, well, maybe a new brush will fix this. But it sounds like you've almost gone the opposite way. How did you sort of come into the one brush done? Well, I definitely started by buying at least one different size. So a small round, not the kind of, some of my students have brushes that have, I swear, five hairs, you know, not that small of a round, but a round brush. And then probably like a quarter inch bright and maybe the size in between that. So maybe an eight, a 10 and a 12. And from oil painting, I really liked bright brushes, the shape, you know, the square. I thought it was very versatile. So I already had some background you know, in painting with a square, probably too religious about that, you know, because I know a round brush works really well and filbert works really well. But I think, again, it's just that how can I simplify my toolbox because I want to paint plein air, I want to travel, I want my studio to be orderly enough that you can just grab that, you know, grab that favorite brush. And then as I was painting more and more with gouache, I just realized that I don't need those smaller sizes. I can, you know, turn this size 16 on its edge and get that thin shape that I want. Um, I can use, you know, one corner of the 
the bright square head of the brush and get you know a shape that I want. And again, because it's opaque paint, if I don't quite get the shape I want, I can cut it back down. And I found that really with those other sizes, the smaller size brush, I was spending so much time just basically going from top to bottom of the painting surface, where with the larger brush, I could cut that time down. What surface do you work on? Currently, I predominantly work on Crescent Illustration Board. So it's like 24 ply. You can put on a really wet wash at the beginning of your painting, and there's absolutely no buckling surface change. I do also paint on watercolor paper. I mean, there's just the blocks of, I think it's Fluid is the company, the brand name. But I also love to paint on cardboard with gouache and on wood, just bare wood. You know, you're, well, I have the luxury of having a husband who does a little bit of work, woodworking and you know, you walk through the wood shop and you're like, well, is that scrap? You know, and oh, that's a nice thin piece of wood or that's a nice size piece of woods. And I also like craft paper. With all of those services, they don't require any pre-treatment to them. You know, so like with oil, you typically gesso whenever you're going to paint on. With gouache, you just apply it. How do you cut down illustration board? So I have one of those mats that goes on my table that you can, you know, slice into self-sealing. They're usually green, a big square mat, and you can cut a piece of paper on top of it with a razor blade and the, the mat just kind of absorbs the razor blade and uh, you can use it you know, thousands of times. So I buy a large sheet of illustration board, usually from Vic Blick, and you use a metal ruler that has the cork backing so it won't slip on top of the illustration board. And then I use a utility knife and you just, you know, you measure the size you want and you just keep cutting down till I have a bunch of maybe eight by eight, five by seven, six by eight, cut all the remainders to two by twos. Or if, you know, there's a 30 day challenge coming up, then I might be cutting all two by twos. It is a little time consuming, but you can buy them and probably, I think one of my students had a six by eight illustration board. So if you just wanted to give it a try, you can buy them without having to cut them. I had another student who took them to Kinko's and the people at Kinko's cut them down for her and they were very nicely cut. So there are those options too. Well then we're going to transition into process. Could you walk me through your process? Find a subject. It's going to be different. You know, if you're plein air painting or painting in the studio or painting from photos, figure out what size support correlates with your subject. I do paint a lot of squares and that is terrible to say. It's purely driven by Instagram. Yes, I know you can put whatever size you want on there, but when I started painting, it was, I think it was only squares or they cropped it. They cropped it. You know, you weren't allowed to edit it, but I like a square format. I think it's, um, it's balanced. It's a little more interesting or dynamic than a rectangle. It's just something I've always been drawn to. So you've got your subject. You've taken your palette out of the refrigerator. Just I keep my palette closed until I am ready to apply paint to my surface. And then I'll do a quick sketch on the surface using a Prismacolor very thin red pencil. Like I said, I usually do the sketch right on the support, the illustration board. Occasionally, if I'm you know, looking out the window and some lighting I know is going to change really quickly. Mostly it would be like, you look out the window and you're like, oh man, look at that value shape, you know, or that value pattern, or, you know, that's really helping me see the three-dimensional object I'm looking at. Then I might do a quick thumbnail sketch, 
just on any piece of paper I have available. <laughs> Do a quick thumbnail sketch just to nail that down. The same would be true if I was painting my cats. And it would be the same kind of thing. You walk through the studio, you walk through the house, and you're like, oh, look at the lighting on Carlos. Isn't that nice? And I might do a quick sketch then, or I might just do sketches and use them as references later to paint from. But typically, I sketch right on the illustration board, even if I'm doing the cat or the mountains or something from life. If it's a value pattern I want to really hang on to, I'll add a little value. But normally, it is just a line drawing. Because for my daily practice, it's typically two inches by two inches. You know, it's only going to be a minute before I'm back to painting and the value pattern out there or on the cap won't change that much. So I typically draw right on it, just a line drawing. And then I open up my palette and I either mix up my darkest dark or my most vulnerable color. So something that if I did not respect that space where that vulnerable color needs to go, I would never be able to get it back. Like say it's that primary yellow, which is very transparent. You know, if I put a wash down of red or blue or something, I might not ever be able to get back there. I did skip that part. Typically, after I do the drawing, I do a wash, a lot of water, a little bit of pigment, and it just knocks down that white surface to an overall blue, an overall red. Yellow ochre is also a very nice color to do that with. Then I do that darkest dark or that vulnerable color. And then I just paint out from that, you know, that initial darkest dark. I start painting what's next to it. Or, you know, maybe the darkest dark is usually next to a dark that's not quite as dark. And I'm thinking a lot about my black and white cat. So, you know, you've got that darkest black, if you will. And then the blue light is normally hitting him somewhere. And so you just lighten that up and then move to the white and then cut him back into shape with the background and it would be the exact same way with the landscape. You'd start with your darkest dark or your vulnerable color. You'd give it that overall wash of tends to either be a yellow or a blue or a red. And then you just keep looking at your subject and keep negotiating, you know, the last stroke you put down, whether you need to cut it back or make it bigger. And then just do a lot of stepping back, looking at it, asking yourself if you've got what you're looking at or what you, you know, what drew you to the subject. When you are asking those questions, like what drew me to the subject, how does that translate to what you're trying to do in the painting? Is that about focal area? A lot of times it is about focal area. I don't think I ever really think in mood, although I'm sure it could probably be defined as that. Usually it's the lighting, either that nice shadow pattern or the bright highlight on a tree next to that shadow pattern or in the fall. We have trees that turn a really nice yellowy orange, more yellow than orange. And that up against the blue sky that we tend to have in Colorado, you know, some varying ice contrast. I think it's more of those type of either a color combination or a value combination or a subject like a cat. I'm a sucker for an animal, you know, a cow, those type of things. Why put the darkest dark in first? How does that help, like, either anchor your process or is that? Because that sets the relationship plan going forward. So a little a bit of both. Plus, it's also relatively vulnerable. So if you don't put in your darkest dark prior to putting in some whites or some lights, you may not be able to get back to that darkest dark. That said, it is gouache. It is opaque. There is a very high pigment concentration. So a lot of times you can. 
get back to that dark is dark. So then it is also about setting that value tone. Your white of the page is your lightest light. You put in your darkest dark, and then you know everything else that you mix up on your palette should be somewhere in between those. Right, because that would be true even if you're painting a scene that's higher key. Like you would still put in that darkest dark, even if it were maybe mid-range. Right, right. So it sounds like it's a little bit both because of the thing that's happening on the page, but is it also because of like a mixing strategy? That does make things simpler as long as you, you know, keep your puddles on your palette under control. But yes, you can go, you know, you get your darkest dark on there and then you can just add on the edge of that puddle, you can just add white would be the thing that would be sound like it's the most common, but you know, it could be a little more blue. It could be the yellow ochre. You know, the yellow ochre is lighter than the Venetian red or the cobalt to some degree. So you could just be, you know, adding a little bit more, changing a little bit more. When I do that, I do try to reserve some of that darkest dark on my palette. And that's so I can visually see on my mixing area what my darkest dark looks like, the value and the color. But also, if you need any more, you have a reference on your palette for either mixing up some more or for taking a little bit of it and putting it back in the painting. You know, and when you're, when you're talking about a two-by-two two painting, you only need a tiny bit more, right, to change an, a large section of the surface. Does gouache dry lighter or darker then? That depends on how watery your brush is and your palette is and your paint, you know, in the wells. If you had the exact right amount of water, which you just, you get from feel, you get from putting in the miles, you, know, you just kind of learn what that right amount is. It's gonna dry pretty much true to color. If you have too much water in your brush, and then that can just be like a slight, you know, an eyedropper versus too much water when it comes to painting a two by two painting, or really actually any size painting, your lights are going to dry a little darker than you imagined. So you're trying to get that bright white of the black and white object, and it keeps just drying to more of a, a very light gray or something. That's because you have too much water in your brush or too much water in your mixing palette. And darks tend to dry a little bit lighter than you think they're going to. But again, that has to do with how much water you have in there. So it's because of that high pigment concentration in gouache. Gouache is simply gum arabic and a high pigment concentration. If you start adding water to that mixture, you're diluting that high pigment concentration. That's why you get it doesn't quite dry to the value you anticipated. You're dealing with a two by two space. I mean, I should say for listeners, like Patty works in various sizes, but we're sort of focused on the the smaller work today. How important is simplification for your work? Extremely important. I don't want to spend all day painting it. And just because I'm going down in size to two inches by two inches doesn't mean I'm painting a miniature. The detail is almost not there. If you look at my paintings of Max, almost never ever are there whiskers. His nose can just be you know, the corner of my brush going in there, he has a pink nose, going in there with pink, and then I might cut it back a little bit. He's got white around the, the pink nose. I might cut it back a little bit, reshape it, you know, give him a quick nose job. But I'm not in there, you know, I don't have a magnifying glass. You know, I'm at the age that I wear reading glasses. I will put them on at the very end to make sure something is not like, you know, way off. And I think that might actually be helpful to not paint with your reading glasses on, um, no matter what size you're painting. 
unless you have the kind of soft edges that you don't you don't even realize you're creating them because you can't see them. So I would say simplification is very important. It keeps it at a manageable effort and time. So that's another bonus of using that big brush. You know, you can only paint so many whiskers with a, a size 16 brush, right? You'd spend all your time cutting it back in. I think it's very important. For someone who might be new to the term simplification, what do you mean, like for you as an artist, what do you mean when you talk about simplification? So it starts with supplies. Anything I can do to simplify the number of supplies I have will make getting a painting done easier and more predictable as like on a daily basis or routine basis. Because, you know, if you only have five supplies, it's really easy to have them with you. It's really easy to have a double set of it at the studio or maybe leave one in your car if it's the right time of year for the temperature, you know, to leave paint in the car and have one on the kitchen table because the cats always lay near the kitchen table. So that simplification starts with supplies. Again, if you're, you know, going to do a 30-day challenge or paint daily, if you can paint on the same size surface day after day after day, it simplifies your prep work. You know, I can cut 30 two-by-two pieces of illustration board and then I'm also ready to go. Simplify that. When it comes to the actual painting process, always draw on that red pencil. Yes, you can change, but you know what's going to happen if you draw on the red pencil. You know, as you put down the strokes, what's going to show, where the red pencil is going to show through or around the strokes. Are you going to like it or not? You've already worked out that process in a hundred paintings. So you're very familiar with what's going to happen, right? And then having the same simple setup on your palette, like go, you know, yellow, red, blue, and then white is in there, that kind of thing. My yellow, primary yellow is next to my yellow ochre, then my red, you know, so warm to cool. Just however you lay it out, you always do the same thing. You keep it simple, you know, you don't mix it up here and there because it's just going to slow you down a little bit. So anything you can do to simplify the whole process will mean you do it more often or at least you're ready to do it, right? Um, that you still have to have that effort to step out the door. And if you're doing the same simple steps through each painting, you know, starting with your darkest dark or your most vulnerable area or starting with a wash, it just is kind of a, it becomes a, one of those simple recipes. Like you've got one, Everybody's maybe read the Nestle Toll House cookie recipe over and over and over again. And you start to think of it as simple because you've done it so many times and you've mastered the little quirks in the recipe enough times that you're very familiar with it. So anything I can do to simplify the whole process, I do. Do you think the simplification that you have set up in your process helps you create work that is simplified, like from a visual design standpoint? It very well could be. And I understand what you're saying. Like the, like I'm not going into great detail. Like Max's face might not even have eyes, right? It may just be a big black stroke. And so that is extremely simplified, right? No whiskers. You know, if you draw a tree, I'm not going to draw every branch. I'm going to draw what it takes to convey it's a tree to you. And I don't feel like it's lazy. I feel like it's getting the essentials down and giving the viewer what he needs to see, but also not all the information. Because I think when you give them all the information, you can run the risk of having a boring painting. Like what is there for the viewer to enjoy if you give them all the information? 
that said, photorealism is very impressive. I don't know how they do it. But yeah, I, I agree. I think that simplifying, had, kind of having that mindset that what can I simplify? How can I lay down one stroke and indicate the sky, a, a whole, an entire plane of a mountain with one stroke? And that, that's when you step back and look like, oh, that worked. Move on to the next one. <laughs> you know? Right. So what I hear you saying is like that worked, leave it alone. Like sometimes as artists, especially when we're first getting started out, it's like we think that worked. Did that work? Oh, maybe if I just touch it one more time. And you're saying like, leave it. At all costs, leave it. <laughs> but yes, I understand when you start out and for a long, long time. And some people never even, you know, some people maintain that because they like the outcome and they enjoy the process. I like to keep it as simple as possible. And also by keeping it simple, that makes my daily practice attainable and sustainable because I know well, I can be done in 30 minutes. If on a really good day, I can be done in less than 30 minutes. On a really bad day, if it starts going anywhere near an hour, but it shouldn't. It's not working. That's my clue. It's not working. <laughs> Start over. Well, then when you're looking at a scene, and let's just take plain air, plain air painting, how is that simplification work beginning and how you're looking at the scene and thinking about the scene? So I think of things as simple as a mountain would be easier, simpler to paint than a field with a tractor in it or, you know, a bunch of buildings. It'd be easier for me to paint a landscape that has trees and mountains simpler. They're simpler subjects, they're simpler forms. They lead them, they also have room for negotiation, give and take, like a tree. No one is ever going to know if you paint a tree way different than it actually looked. But if you go to downtown New York or Chicago or, you know, even your own little small town and you paint a bunch of buildings and you paint them out way out of perspective or some taller than they should be or shorter than they should be or your people don't correlate in size to your buildings, those are subjects to me that would not be simple. But the tree, because it has a wiggle room and what shape it is, you know, as long as it's not way bigger than a mountain, there's still relationships, right, that you have to be honest to. So when I look at a scene, those are the things that I'm looking for. It's like, oh, that field, you know, in front of those mountains and you know, in front of the trees and in front of the mountains, the field is almost just one big sweep of yellow ochre. I can go in and change some values here and there. Those trees, you know, there's a nice lighting pattern going across them. You can connect all those type of things. So yes, I'm looking at those, but that's not the only thing I'm looking at. Or, you know, that's not what's totally driving the painting. We I live in a small town in Colorado. There is a nice downtown. But if you turn around and look the other way in almost any direction, you're seeing the mountains. If I had a choice between standing in the middle of town and painting or turning around and painting the mountains, you know, I would turn around. I think that's a simpler subject. When you're talking about trying to capture the essentials, what do you mean? Like, is that a shape thing? Is that a value thing? Is that a color thing? What are the essentials you're trying to capture? I think you nailed it there. It would be the relationships between value, color, shape, and whatever your focal point is. How much skill did you feel like you had to acquire before you could simplify in the way that you do now? Several years, maybe up to 10, learning how to draw. And that is 
was my main, I learned so much in art school. I mean, so much. But that was, I would say, that's my main takeaway is I went to a school where everything was done from life, your printmaking, your sculpting, your photography, you know, you, everything was focused on reality, not working from photographs or drawing for printmaking for sculpting. So you were forced to learn, you know, how to draw and that had to carry over to your sculpting and your printmaking and your painting. So learning how to draw, I spent one year where I drew every single day. I would say I really needed to gain that skill set in order to simplify my painting. I don't think simplification is a way to get around not being able to draw, which I think, you know, you might look at some of my paintings and say, does she even know what a cat looks like? You know? Or does she even know what a tree looks like? She just gives it, you know, one swipe and calls it a tree. But if you really stare at a tree or a group of trees, right, they become one and you, you can simplify it. I'm not talking about a portrait of a tree. But, you know, from a distance with a field between you and those trees, you might say they're trees, but they really become shapes. And so you can simplify them down to shapes and you'll tell the viewer what he needs to know. And as long as you get those values right, and the, you know, the shapes and the correlation between them and what's in front of them and what's behind them, there's a lot of room for simplification. Well, is that because drawing helped you have command over accuracy? Yes. And the more I practice it, the more comfortable I was doing it. Um, so now, like I might demonstrate for my students doing a two by two. And one demonstration I did, one of my students goes, that took her 15 minutes and it included a drawing. And I'll tell my students, like when in the painting class, I'm like, yes, get the drawing perspective right, the relationships right. But it's a painting class. We want to work on your painting skills. So don't spend the entire class doing the drawing. And they kind of look at me like, Easy for you to say, you know? So yes, it gives you command over getting your subject down, even in the most simplest way. It gives you command over learning that it's all about relationships. You know, how big is something compared to the thing next to it? How dark is it compared to the thing next to it and the thing behind it and the thing in front of it? If someone is interested in learning how to create work that is more simplified and more focused on the essentials, where do they even start? Get a big brush, draw every day from life. Yeah, I know there's some limitations depending on where you live and all that stuff, but you can always draw your foot. If you're right-handed, you can draw your left hand. Start with the thumb, you don't even need to do the whole thing. If you're lucky enough to have a significant other who's around all the time or who watches TV or reads at night or is on his computer or her computer, you've got a subject. You don't have to show it to them. You know, you can shred everything you can do. You do. It is nice to hang on to those first things just so 10 years later you can look back at you know how far you've come. So get the big brush. You don't have to worry about your pencil being sharpened. The dull line, you know, kind of also helps you not be picky and paint as often as you can, draw as often as you can. If there's any way to work a daily practice or mostly daily practice, it could be Monday through Friday if your family life, you know, is demanding on the weekends. And it can be for, you know, your drawing can be five minutes. Most of us can peak out five minutes during the day to to draw. And it's a fun thing to do. So simplify your supplies get into daily drawing or daily painting and you will find that that big brush things start to become simple shapes also think about things like that when you start out a drawing or a painting 
simplify everything you can. If you start out drawing a tree and you're just drawing every limb and every branch, back up, look at that tree, ask yourself, is it a rectangle or a square? Maybe it's a circle or something very similar to that. Put that big shape down and then put the other shapes that are around it down. So you have that correlation of who's tallest, who's widest, you know, who's darkest, who's lightest. That's a very good way to start the simplification process. process. And then go out from there. Then start to whittle the tree down. Put in what you feel is essential. You know, I'm not saying, you know, leave the highlight off or sometimes those whiskers or what the painting is all about. You want to put those in there or you want to add a person to your, you know, your painting to give it relative size. It's easier to tell the mountains are gigantic if you have a person in the painting, right? So work general to specific. Well, then if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Draw every day. Simplify your process so it's easy to do on a very routine basis. Paint as much as you can from life. Draw as much as you can from life. And even if you want to get better at oil, wash is a very nice way to do that because it's so easy to clean up and set up. And a lot of the properties of gouache mentally transfer over to what you need to bring to the table when you do an oil painting. Anytime you have the opportunity to go to a major museum that has masterworks, go. Draw them. Sit down on a bench. Stand there with a small sketchbook. No one will care. They will be in awe no matter what you come out with. And most people, the average public spends seconds looking at masterworks. Um, No one will know that you're there for a half hour. So any museum that has a decent collection or maybe, you know, the art museum in Dayton, Ohio has one Cezanne. So go get yourself a membership. Go there as often as you want and draw from those masterworks in person. They're much different than they look in books. If you only have access to books, then I'd also suggest copying masterworks in drawing, in painting as well. Gouache is a very nice medium for doing that just because it's simple cleaning up and a simple setup. And you know, if you've got some paint where it didn't belong, you can probably clean it up. And what does that give you? Like, What is that training you to do or see when you study masterworks in that way? Well, they call them masters for a reason. And so it trains you to recognize a good composition a good value pattern, you know, how things are in perspective or things are in proper relationship to what's next to them. And just that there's, you know, a higher bar out there. There are things to still attain. There are just to be in awe of how someone painted a subject or put in the time. I mean, John Singer Sargent drew from the time he was a child and never stopped until he died. And it shows. And so it teaches you that the value of drawing consistently. You can learn more about Patty Vincent at her website, www.pattyvincent.com and on Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Patty. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice to talk about gouache and plein air and painting and drawing. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kelly. We're finished with the main episode, but there's more great conversation with Patty Vincent at patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast. Sign up at any tier and get immediate access to Vincent's bonus conversation where you'll discover how Vincent approaches her foreground, middle ground, and background, and you'll get some great ideas for how to inch your way into plein air painting. Plus, you'll have access to over 25 additional extended cut bonuses with guests, all for the price of coffee plus tip. 
For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 75. Thank you to everyone listening in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, Victoria Young, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting. <laughs>